Fresh Economic Thinking podcast, new ideas and analysis with Dr. Cameron Murray and Jonathan Gadir. Welcome back to the Fresh Economic Thinking podcast. I'm Cameron Murray, founder of Fresh Economic Thinking, and I'm here today with a special guest, Tim Helm. Like many of my guests, Tim found himself in a barney recently about some of those finer details of economic analysis, uh, this time around zoning and house prices. Now, Tim and I have worked together on this topic and on a few other uh, projects, and I thought it'd be uh, interesting to get him on the show and really pick his brain a little about where he's come from intellectually, uh, where he's going and, and how our paths crossed. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think we agree on everything, so I think there might be a good story there. So, Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks, Cam. Good morning. You'll have to alert me to as to which Barney it was you're referring to. As I'm off Twitter, I, I don't engage in quite as many as, as you do, but um, <laughs> there's still been a few well, Barneys well, one in thing. Yeah, <laughs> now I'm talking about the Auckland uh, paper, and one thing Tim's taught me is how to have Barney's in a much more um, polite uh, way. <laughs> but maybe we should start with uh, uh, a little bit in the past. Now, uh, Tim has a PhD in economics, and his PhD is called Essays on the Economics of Price Transmission which sounds pretty, um, does it sound boring? What's the right word for it? Pretty straight. Tim, there are how did you, more or less. How did there you decide to do a PhD on, on that topic? How, to, where, should, where should we start to understand how you ended up there and how you got to where you are now? I think it's a great place to start. It'll take us through right through to land and housing economics because the the title of that thesis is the title you put on a thesis when you're wrapping uh, an awkward bow around a package with a lot of lumps. And that's because about halfway through uh, my, my PhD time, I came across the economics of land tax and got particularly interested in that and wrote a couple of chapters of PhD around that and particularly focused on this question of how is a land tax passed on? Is it passed on to rents or passed back into land? And one of the reasons I, I happened upon this topic and puzzled so hard over it was that the first half of my PhD had been looking at um, an abstract bunch of models that were around price transmission in supply chains. You know, when the oil price goes up or down, how quickly does that flow through to, to the petrol price? And I, through you know, being engrossed in some of the models that that exist in this field and in the particular application of asymmetries and and the rate of price transmission, I had really adopted a a mental worldview about how the world worked that became my my lens on you know, really all markets and it, and the lens didn't partic particularly fit well with many many situations. So I typically thought about um, you know costs as fixed and prices as reflecting those costs in a, in a building blocks type of manner, a linear causality, if you like. And 
So naturally, when somebody uh, gave me a brochure, in fact, about land tax, explaining that land tax wouldn't increase rents, I thought, well, they don't know the first thing about economics. And that, that was a little gateway into this sort of long history of thinking about land tax that led me on, I suppose, into my subsequent career, working mostly in tax policy and land and housing markets. Yeah, amazing. And I, I forgot to mention at the beginning, you are now the research director at Prosper Australia. Now, is it my understanding that it was um, this flyer that you're talking about uh, around land taxes was actually from Pro the group Prosper Australia? Yeah, you've got it exactly right. So my PhD is from Melbourne University. I was living in Melbourne at the time and just came across this, this um, think tank NGO by chance and their literature, I'll put it politely, on land tax um, led me into getting interested in that question. So that was uh, more than 10 years ago and I've stayed loosely attached to Prosper since um, while working in the state government of Victoria and consulting in Victoria, some private consulting. Um, I've been part of the, I suppose, informal group of advisors that help shape some of Prosper's ideas and research directions. And uh, as of this year, um, I've taken on a you know, part-time role as the research and policy director for Prosper. I suppose I should introduce Prosper a little. They're a Georges think tank, which means mm -hmm. uh, they're from the, the tradition of spruiking the ideas of Henry George, which were focused on land tax at the center of tax systems, or focused really on the capture of rents in the economy, particularly from land. Um, so we at Prosper, uh, I suppose, do a lot of policy advocacy that's particularly focused around increasing the share of property tax, um, as opposed to taxes on you know productive activity, uh, on labour, etc. And we also do a sideline in research because you can't really just keep banging the drum, yelling for a land tax every year before people tune out. So we we have yeah. capacity do some original research and that's often focused around the nature of land markets and housing markets we can talk about some of that if you like yeah great so how long ago was it that you uh did this phd and realized that you had this building blocks idea of prices that maybe you needed a different lens for and maybe what what is this building block <laughs> idea of prices what changed and how did what happened in the intervening years to get you from from there to here? Yeah, yeah, great question. I, I mean, I think I see this cost plus idea, uh, this cost plus assumption that many people have about prices in the economy as as you know the great big cancer of the mind that affects so much thinking around housing, particularly and about tax policy. And I I was in that mindset really. You know these models of how fast a cost shock flows through took the cost side as as we say in economics exogenous, like fixed, something determined in a market um, somewhere else. And then we look at how that f flows through to prices. And I think many people hold this worldview that instinctively they they think linearly that. You add up a bunch of costs and maybe a margin, a profit margin reflecting the competitiveness of an industry and you end up at the price. And that's in many circumstances a good enough uh, heuristic. But the, the case of um, land in particular is a really special one because land has no a cost, if you like. It's already there. And so the cost to use it in production, use it productively or use it at all is, is zero. Um, you know, what mm. do you 
sacrifice by using land in 2023 well you can't you know store up those services for 2024 or, or bring them forward it's those services sort of flow steadily with time so it's it's costless to use land and yet yet land has this you know high price when we're talking of urban land and of course that price uh, is determined causally backwards from the prices we pay to use land in various ways such as housing um, and so if you like that rule of thumb of pass through where you know a cost and a supply chain causes a price that that way of seeing the world is wrong when it comes to land and we should uh, realize the the reverse nature of it where we think about the price of land as reflecting the leftover, the residual, if you like, after we take the value of what we can do with land and net off all the costs associated with the doing of it. And it's a really, it's a really old insight. I mean, it was second nature, I think, to economists for several generations, but somehow the, the training uh, that that I'd gone through, you know, right to PhD level, perhaps this is a reflection on me more than the training, but I, I'd missed really that, that central point that land has some different attributes um, you know, certainly labour and capital are also, those prices are determined by, uh, in part, uh, uh, um, the value of what it is mm. they produce. But land is particularly special in that regard because it's already there and it's fixed in supply. So that's yeah. the, uh, the directionality point that I'm talking about that was sort of an eye-opening change. Um, and I suppose that's also how it led me into housing economics, which is that in working in tax policy and, and government, I'd see this misunderstanding uh, all the time yeah, amongst policymakers and exploited by lobbyists, really, in the classic way being that, you know, if you increase a, a land tax, the claim is it's going to be passed through to rents. That's sort of used by landowners all the time. Uh, and it's very persuasive because it taps on people's intuitions, but it just doesn't match the economics that we've had right back to, you know, Adam Smith and before. Yeah, so it's it's quite interesting um, that you explain it this way uh, and that you encountered it because my background is actually in property valuation, property economics. And so when I studied economics, I was doing sort of the reverse transition, <laughs> having this residual idea of the value of land, like the value of lands determined on what people will pay for a location, uh, you know, a use at that location, you minus the costs of investing on that land to get that use and the residual, what's left over is the value of the land. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting that you sort of made the opposite transition. I started um, with this and have, have been banging my head <laughs> yeah, against yeah. the wall when it comes to communicating this idea. But um, the more interesting... Yeah, it's uh, actually, I, I think of this as... Uh, learning it the hard way as I learned it, I think your mental model that you started with as, as a practitioner matches the economics better, but, but learning it the hard way was, you know, it's a humbling lesson when you feel like you understand the world pretty well. There's no mm. feeling of internal inconsistency. And then a better point of view comes along and you're sort of wrenched from one to the other. And you realize that your feelings of internal consistency were no guide to whether you were correct. I, I think that lesson kind of stuck with me through time. Um, yeah, sort of so... So one of the puzzles I had, I had this reasonable view about where the value of land came from, but I could never explain why it might be optimal to own land, but keep it undeveloped. 
because if the value of the land comes from uh, using the land for something, subtracting the cost of constructing that, that use on the land, why would I not construct that use on the land? Why would I own the land but never um, use it? And and I remember during my PhD walking around the halls at UQ, knocking on doors of economists and saying, I, you know, I'm, I've got this new model about, you know, why people might not use land. And, and everyone's like, no, that doesn't make sense. You would just instantly always invest in land. But I'm like, look out the window. Yeah, there's something yeah, there. So I, so I had a sort of transition myself in thinking of of observing the world and going, oh, this model of the residual value is incomplete because it doesn't tell me why I would never use land. And I, I looked at things like land banking. You know, we call it land banking, and I used to work for property developers, and we would own land and never seemed to be in a hurry until we started paying the builders. There was always this sort of patient period of thinking about what we should do and so i had a a a similar change uh in that so maybe maybe we should talk about that for a while but i also want to talk about spatial equilibrium which is uh, an idea that you i think influenced me quite heavily but maybe we'll we'll start with land banking how did you come to this idea and how what do you make of it now because i think it's super important for the current policy debates. How would you um, explain this to someone on the street? Yeah, I, I think it's really important and in under-recognized ways for policy debates about housing. So I'll have a crack at, at, at selling the importance of land banking. And, and I think what's interesting is there has been this parallel conversation where over in the, the development sector, land banking is a, an obvious thing. It's your, you know, a business strategy is what everybody does. You can you can measure it. There's all sorts of empirics, including some that you've done, that show land being held for a ridiculously long time you know, compared to what it takes to get it ready for sale. And then over there in the economics profession and in many of the uh, fields of policy analysis that rely on that mainstream economics, it doesn't really exist. There's no place to slot it into the mental models. And I think the classic in this regard, if you're in Australia, is the Productivity Commission's report from last year on the Housing and Homelessness Agreement, which had a box about land banking, sort of re- reasoning that, that it couldn't exist. And it was really a masterclass in, uh, if you like, motivated reasoning. I, you know, I, I don't understand how this empirical phenomenon fits in my model so I'll work really hard on rationalizing why it doesn't exist. And I think, you know, the advice is the same as you would have given to your, your professors, which is, you know, look out the window. We can learn from empirics when doing science. We don't need to fall prey to this, uh, you know, model-based uh, exploration to find the truth. So to get to your, to your question, like what, why is land banking important? Well, maybe we should define what it is because I think some people, we sort of call land banking two things. One is buying land, um, knowing it can be developed for the return prior to development. And one is the fact that just all land is owned by someone, whether it's got development potential or not, whether their intention is to develop or not or use it for its current use. Does that make sense? So how would you sort of... Yeah, have a yeah. define this clearly as a phenomenon versus the fact that just development opportunities exist, all property is owned by someone, therefore 
um, any land owned by someone that could be developed that isn't is therefore land backed. Like, what, what do you think? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think we're working out on the fly because there isn't really a textbook definition of, mm. of land banking. So I think the, it's incumbent on us to create definitions that are useful and meaningful for analysis. Um, and I'm also going to throw in the word speculation, which is one that's got fuzzy meanings as well. And, um, you know, it also gets used in everyday, everyday terms. And sometimes speculation is defined in terms of the intent of of uh, the the speculator, so I'm sort of thinking about these two words as needing or you know, benefiting from tighter definitions. So what I'm interested in and where I think the right definition of this goes is that I want to know about land that is already feasible to redevelop. So the classic being farmland on the edge of the city is that you can sell that and someone can build a, a house on that. All you're losing is the value of you know, running a few sheep on it. So it's clearly on a development feasibility calculation that there is a new use that is immediately today more profitable than the old use, and that's building a house today. Uh, so that's, that's the feasibility test. And so I define really um, land banking as being the holding of land in undeveloped use or less developed use that's already feasible that is profitable to develop to higher intensity use. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious, and, uh, and that's, a, that's a definition that doesn't rely on the intent of mm -hmm. the, the, the operator. And I think that's, that's perhaps useful if we're going to make sense of it. And I'll, I'll just get on to why I think that's a useful definition is that we, we're engaged in a lot of these policy conversations around contribution of zoning and other uh, um, other policy levers towards housing development and towards house prices, therefore. And a really key question is how much land is already sitting there ready to go, profitable to develop, but is not being developed because there is this strategic delay in developing it, uh, you know, strategic behaviour, private sector behaviour, nothing to do with public sector rules, private sector behaviour is delaying development. And we want to be able to quantify that. So I think the the test that def that of how much um, land is already feasible to redevelop is a good one. Now, whether we call that land banking or, or we just call that the you know, feasible capacity or something else is maybe secondary point, but I think it's just simplest to define this land banking this way. But I'm curious also about your thoughts. Is this how you mm -hmm. conceive of land banking as a, if you like, a feasibility test passes yet it's not being developed yet? Uh I'll be honest, you just explained it, how it is in my head, but I've never been able to articulate it well, as well as what you just did. So <laughs> this is oh. this is a common theme for listeners. I have an idea. I explain it badly to Tim five different ways, and then he explains it back to me very clearly <laughs> and concisely. Um, which you is, should write them down, right? So definitely, if if something like that is valuable for your organisation, please give Tim a call. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. The, so a lot of people, for example, might have a large house lot that they could split into and subdivide. And, you know, at a market price today, the value of that big house lot is more as a development project than a single home, right? So another simple case but they're not doing it and this you know i don't think mind reading the intent of property owners 
is a good way to understand a phenomenon. Uh, I think, you know, people don't really know what they think quite often. So I think your, your point of just, if it's feasible to develop and the property owner is choosing not to develop today for any reason, um, whether they don't have the money, whether it's never crossed their mind, whether they don't realize whether they're waiting uh, with the intent to make more money in the future, um, you know, whatever they're doing, uh, they are waiting. They are banking that land. Um, and, and this time dimension is being exposed, I think. Now, another point you made back to me, which was amazing, um, is the incentive. I think a lot of people don't under the, understand the incentive. Can you, can you maybe articulate why it might be better, even for the person who understands the payoff today, to not develop today and instead hold that sheep farm or that um, you know big housing lot and wait for the future. Why is it better to not have cash today? What's the trade-off? Yeah, like I I can and I'll you know acknowledge that your thinking's informed mine fairly heavily on this, uh, even if I express it slightly differently. Although I'll actually just I'll just touch on one more point first, which is why why do we care about this land banking? I said it's you know important for knowing how much the private sector is contributing to slower development, but I, I think I just want to join this conversation about land banking to policy conversations about housing supply and affordability because what it is to supply a house is to end land banking on a site so you've got mm. a site here's what to develop you're not developing it you're not developing it. you're not developing it one day you develop it that means you end land banking and it also means you supply a house so we hear incessantly about the importance of housing supply and yet people don't understand the importance of land banking well i just want to say you know this speculation, this land banking, it's the opposite of housing supply. So if you want to yeah. understand where housing supply comes from, you've got to understand the incentive to land bank. So I'll just jump in. This The yeah, line please. I think I've heard you use is supply starts when speculation ends. So you are taking this, um, this timeline through time of feasible sites. And at one point in that timeline, you build a house, but before that, you're speculating. I mean, you have a feasible site that you're choosing not to develop yet. And I thought that really captured this idea pretty well. Yeah, I hope so. That's how I see it. Um, right. And now the question that you raised is what is that incentive? Like why land bank? Why not just build everything immediately? And so the, the answer, of course, is that, you know, producing housing services is not like producing haircuts or... I don't know, lettuce is something you just bring to market and uh, there's, there's no sort of um, long-term investment involved. So the, the nature of land development is that you put some structures on a site, you commit the site to those structures for you know the life of those structures, the economic life of those structures, and that's effectively irreversible or it's uh, you know economically irreversible. It doesn't make sense to destroy some capital once once it's on the site. So those two things give rise to, um, as you've expressed very well numerous times, to an option. You've got uh, you've a real option, and that has value. And the option means you've got the right to develop the site, but not the obligation. Uh, and and that has value because you know one thing you could do is develop the site today, but you may be able to do better that by not developing not developing it today. So the answer I give to people who say, well. Um, 
why would land banking rise? It's the answer is that, well, even when development is profitable, not developing might be even more profitable. Obviously, it means developing tomorrow. So why would it be more profitable? Well, one reason is that uh, prices rise through time very often in many circumstances. You know, as incomes rise, people, what people can pay for rentals rise or what, you know, so what's worth an investor to buy a, a rental property rises or various ways the price you can sell a built house for rises through time. And so it may be that if that price is rising faster than the, um, if you like, the, the return on or the borrowing cost on the capital you've used to finance the land, then mm. it makes more sense to uh, sell the house, build and sell a house later. Now, the other point is that you've raised well is that um, if you want to sell more um, today, uh, you have some sort of rate at which you're supplying housing today. And if you want to sell a bit more, you might have to discount that price below what you had anticipated or hoped to get. Um, and that might mean you're selling it uh, for less today than you could tomorrow. And by the same token, I think we can look to the construction side, the cost side is another reason why people might land bank, which is that if you want to, in certain markets, like the present construction market, or particularly 2021, if you want to uh, build today, you're going to have to bid some construction resources away from someone else, which means uh, paying over the odds for those resources. And if you like, what it means is that you're providing, you're paying a bit extra today to bid some construction resources. And that's an incentive for more resources to move into the construction sector um, tomorrow. So you're changing the relative cost of building today versus tomorrow, and you're you're making it slope down a bit. You're you're choosing uh -huh. to build in a way that lowers future costs, but you're exposing yourself to the high present costs of construction. Um, yeah. It's the flip side, if you like, to selling a bit more today and uh, therefore um, causing the um, the gradient of price over time to slope up. So yeah. I think there's two factors that you're going to have to discount your prices if you want to sell a bit more today, and you're going to have to hike up your 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 construction costs if you want to construct a bit more today. Lead you to a balance where it makes sense to delay, um, you know, developing your site or developing all your sites. And I think in essence, that's, the, that's how I understand the incentive for land banking is that you have this, if you like, uh, balance that's the trade-off between profits from land banking and profits from developing. And there's, there's an equilibrium rate at which you want to supply housing. Uh, and yeah, this, this is how I see that, um, that incentive. Look, uh, I, I think we've we've sort of from both different directions come to similar views on that and uh, and, and informed each other's thinking. And I, I think you articulated that well. And um, I, I think I want to sort of bring that together to to this Barney that I flagged. Now, the interesting um, before we get on to Auckland, <laughs> I, I want to say that we we you also alerted me to a. a an article by Eric Crampton, a New Zealand economist, who articulated this same intertemporal trade-off that you just explained yeah. about land banking when it came to the carbon tax 
carbon credits, I think, in New Zealand. So there was a system of carbon credits where if farmers wanted to plant trees, they could um, get carbon credits for them. And there was a concern that, well, if you just let any old property owner plant trees and get carbon credits, carbon credits, won't they flood the market today, plant heaps and heaps of trees until the price of carbon credits goes to zero? And Eric Crampton really um, nicely articulated uh, in an article that, you know, it's not logical to flood the market and undermine future profits by planting lots of trees today. And, and so I, uh, you know, on the Substack, and I'll, I'll put a link in, um, you know, changed all the wording from carbon credits to property and trees to houses to basically use his explanation uh, to show why the same logic applies to housing. And and he, I think, responded and for some reason didn't think it applied uh, yeah. when the thing you put on your property is houses, but does apply when the thing you put on your property is trees. So you, I think you got me into that, Barney. Um, but we, I want to move on so we can wrap well, up. I think you know, expression uh, amended by you was one of the clearest expressions I have of this, you know, intertemporal trade-off. So, yeah, I highly recommend everybody has a look at yeah. your column. Like yeah, so he explained it so well. And that's a funny thing in economics, right? People can see this logic clearly when it's politically convenient for them or when it suits their preferences or their tribe or their social group. And when it doesn't, it's like, oh, I don't know what you're saying. It's impossible that that could be true um, because all my mates are saying the opposite, which, you know, is a, is a recurring theme anyway in this podcast. Now, uh, so Auckland. Auckland upzoned because they thought property owners would panic and flood the market with new homes because it wasn't the intertemporal trade-off that made property owners wait. It was uh, regulations that forced everybody to wait. Now, a couple of uh, economists in New Zealand looked at dwelling consents, which are the equivalent of building approvals in Auckland, and they did some analysis and found that there are an extra 22,000 dwellings in Auckland in the four years or five years after this upzoning. Uh, weirdly, I initially had some concerns about the data simply because the numbers were so huge. So I had this ballpark idea that 22,000, the graph should look different. Tim actually read all the appendices and replicated the analysis and, and, and explained to me some of the conceptual errors. Tim, why did you read it? and replicate the analysis in such detail and what did you find um yeah so as with you uh, it was just it didn't quite pass the sniff test the magnitude of the number being claimed of twenty two thousand, which you know pointed to like something like half the houses built in Auckland since the unitary plan only being built caused you know due to the unitary plan so uh, with you, we you know read through the the guts of this paper and tried to explain the if you like the methodological errors made by the authors. But I think those explanations are really complex, and I'd, I'd start by just posing a litmus test for for listeners. And if it doesn't pass this sniff test, if you like, uh, you know we go through why the methods have led to this wrong conclusion. And the litmus test was this, right? When you're evaluating the impact on certain variable permits of a policy intervention, you need a counterfactual. You need a view of the world of what would have happened without the intervention. 
and you know your counterfactual if you claim there's a certain uh number of permits that were due to the policy your counterfactual is that um it's it's what actually happened minus that number of permits that you claim are attributed to the policy so in the counterfactual um you know created by these authors even though it wasn't transparent you had up to the point of the policy and in, in the real data you had permits growing at about 12% a year for four or five years. So it was it was on a growth curve. Um, you know, it's a cyclical data series and it was growing after the post-GFC lull. And then the counterfactual by the authors says, well, without the policy, that growth of 12% a year would actually just be 6% a year in future. Um, and, you know, hopefully you can put a link to the substacks where you can just see how dramatically off the past trend the counterfactual imposed by these authors actually was. Um, and, you know, maybe unsurprisingly, the authors found that the, the unit true plan doubled um, construction from what it otherwise would have been, which is to say, you know, things continue growing at about 12% a year for a few years. Right. So what they, what they in essence did wrong, and I should note there was two elements to this paper. And one was a quantification of the number of permits attributed to the upzoning. And another one was a, a very complex econometric exercise to essentially prove that there was a statistically significant increase in these overall permits. And we, we sort of ignored this econometrics in our columns because it didn't seem particularly relevant, but um, it, it rests on the same sort of fundamental logical error, which is linear extrapolation on a cyclical series. So this econ econometrics proved statistical significance of permit growth beyond this uh, linear extrapolation from the, the policy date. And they use an, a linear extrapolation as their control group, if you like, because their actual chosen control group isn't a useful control group. It's not a useful control group because it's part of the same you know, citywide housing market. So, of course, a lot of building activity moved from these non-upzoned areas into the upzoned areas, making the non-upzoned area not a useful control. So they invent a control, which is the, you know, the counterfactual for the non-upzoned areas, which they just create by linear extrapolation from the past trend. And uh, in essence, the econometrics proves that total permits you know, exceeded that control by a statistically significant margin. And that's makes the econometrics basically a complicated way of, um, you know, not finding out much. And the overall number, <laughs> you know, a complicated uh, method of not finding out anything particularly meaningful. Um, there's yeah. a couple of issues. There was one major issue aside from this sort of the inappropriateness of linear extrapolation. And that was that they only used a partial data set and many of the permits missing from their data set. Well, the, the, what they carved out of their sample was a special type of permit that really grew rapidly before the plan uh, and then died away rapidly after the plan kicked in. And by excluding it, they turned this Auckland permit series, which was you know effectively steady growth from something that didn't have a structural break into a subsample with with a structural break, and then unsurprisingly found a structural break in their subsample, yeah. but like a, a contrived structural break by carving out a subset of permits that had its own structural break. So in essence, those were the you know the issues with Auckland, and I think um, you know to do Auckland properly to understand the effect, I just don't think you can take a, a single housing market and try and carve up that market into if you like an intervention. Yeah 
in the control group, you're going to have to compare Auckland to elsewhere as best you can. And what have you, what's the fallout been? And what, what have you learned about this sort of academia publishing game, um, the, the approach to knowledge creation from this exercise? Because uh, my, my feeling is for you, um, it's kind of been a bit of a lesson. Is that right? Uh, yeah, no doubt. You've, I, I'm not an academic. You've been in the, the business and seen this. I mean, look, academics have their publication incentives, right? Like, I'd just be publishing what I could uh, as well. Um, um, you know, look, I don't know. I mean, the shocking thing for me is that in the year after this working paper was released and got you know heavily cited in, in policy advice in New Zealand, no economist in New Zealand apparently just got you know, the stats NZ data and did an Excel time series and found that this apparent structural break uh, that, you know, didn't appear in the overall series and like, you know, raised some questions. I just happened to get into it a year after this working paper was released. So, you know, I think New Zealand economics fraternity basically has dropped the ball on that. There's not enough people scrutinizing these things. Um, I suppose it passed peer review as well, right? But to some extent you'd have to, I don't know, it took a little bit of curiosity, though i like you was surprised at this big number yeah so i think for me um you know i i have already been skeptical of peer review it's not obvious to me um you know how much you can review a paper you're just squeezing it in having a read does it does it fit with the stuff i like does it fit with the way journals like papers written so you you know it's not a replication peer review and the other thing for me is this example is how, um, you know, this result can circulate around the world before our critique does and people will still ignore the critique. So they're, they're kind of the lessons. But anyway, Tim, it's been great having you on. Uh, I, I had more questions for you, but I think what we might do is wrap it up and I'll have to get you back on another time. Where can people find you? Do you have a public profile? Should people find you on LinkedIn? What's the best way? LinkedIn only, but I'd also send people to prosper.org.au for um, subscribing for updates. So thanks a lot, Cam. Mm-hmm.